change the way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is, that's true innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be try it. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate first? Hi everyone, Mark here and welcome to the Indifference Podcast, where I have conversations with people at the top of their game about how they create progress. In recent episodes, we've been talking about building smart, innovative cities. This week, we focus on the key piece of this that seems to be an issue all over the world. That's housing affordability. Ireland is a great place to look at this in more detail. More than 10 years after a massive property crash, people in Ireland now have higher housing costs than anywhere else in Europe and they're also the least likely to own their home. As a share of GDP, Ireland invests half as much in housing as its EU neighbours. In fact, compared to the EU average, housing costs here are 80% higher and people are 50% more likely to be mortgage arrears. During this 10-year period, Ireland has also had seven different housing ministers. Piecing this together with the youngest population in Europe and an urban population that is growing more than two and a half times faster than in rural areas, now is a great time to talk with one of Ireland's leading experts on housing and rental policy. On this episode of Indifference, Dorkin Seer from Technological University Dublin shares his thoughts on why all of this matters and how we can make progress on building affordable houses. Hope you enjoy. Housing, Mark, is like the gift that never stops giving really because uh, it has always been, well, since the 70s, well, actually since 100 years ago, it's always been an issue where supply and demand are like two ships passing in the night and they never really reach a state of equilibrium. So there's always either too much or traditionally too little housing around. And we've had uh, housing has been on the agenda for easily over 100 years, 150 years, but on the political agenda for 100, 100 years mostly driven by issues around health, which is interesting now that we have COVID also highlighting issues around poor housing standards and space. But most of the major policy developments in housing over the years have been driven by issues of mitigating, you know, bad outcomes in health, particularly around sanitation and disease and controlling diseases. Because, you know, we had in, in those houses over there in Henrietta Street in North Dublin, and, you know, they were in tenements and they had 100 people, over 100 people living in, in one house and, you know, 17 families living in one house. And of course, they were rife areas for uh, for disease and the spread of disease. So a lot of policy developments have been driven by health needs in the last 40 or 50 years. A lot of policy developments have been driven by financial more financial issues rather than health ones. We have cracked the health ones, even though we still have overcrowding and issues with disease management in 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 housing. And but also, housing is an area that straddles a broad spectrum of different topics and areas, such as the health, like we mentioned, but also things like transport, uh, environment, climate change, and um, infrastructure, architecture, design, urban design you know, communities. And um, so there's always somebody out there who has something to say about housing because it, it has a foot in so many camps. And um, so you, there'll always be something to talk about uh, in housing just because it's such a broad issue. And of course, everybody needs to be housed. So a lot of people have opinions on housing. Now, a lot of the opinions are, are not necessarily driven by altruistic, altruistic motives and, and are quite often wrong, but still people have opinions on because people live in houses and they have personal experiences of it. So it, it, it's always something on the agenda. 
it is one of them topics that just matters to everyone and what we're seeing now is maybe that one has been overlooked for so long with, with different things going on in the background that kind of uh, it just shows the importance of it, a topic like this where you just cannot take the off the ball but going back to the very start of your work at Lorcan what was it that first got you interested in housing and housing policy in particular? Well, I, I started off in academia in, in the UK looking at uh, mostly urban design and um, my, my PhD is all about how we design new buildings in old areas um, and conservation in the UK was, is a much bigger deal there than it is here where we kind of knock down buildings left, right and centre, like the Japanese. Uh, and so I started out in urban design, urban conservation, property development, and I became a chartered surveyor in planning and development. And when I became an academic, I started teaching a thing called valuations, which is basically how you value property and land and buildings. So if you were to buy a building on, on Grafton Street or Patrick Street in, in, in Cork or Shop Street in Galway, how would you know how much to pay for that building if there's a shop on the bottom floor or an apartment on the first floor, all that kind of stuff. So I started off teaching that and a colleague retired who taught urban economics and I took over from him and I got interested in, in the rental sector and I was a, a renter at, at the time and for many years I rented and I got very interested in the rental sector and the legislation in the rental sector and, and security of tenure and tenant rights and landlord rights and obligations and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the rental sector is a large sector of the Irish uh, housing system. And I produced a book called Renting in Ireland. And once you get into renting, it's hard not to get into housing per se in the bigger in the bigger picture. So it's a kind of a natural step that when you when you've kind of squeezed all the juice in the rental sector in terms of you know being an academic that you move into the bigger picture stuff, which is, which is housing uh, more broadly, you know. That's interesting as well, because even just looking at some of the reports that have come out recently, almost a third of people in Ireland are, are tenants. But if you look at the rent prices, they've gone up by about 30% in the yeah. last five years. So that's what, about six times higher than the rest of the EU. So would Ian kind of addressing that, you know, what was it particularly about the position of renters that kind of caught your attention? Like a lot of journalists, uh, you know, a lot of journalists will bring me with stories. And when you when you scratch the surface, you'll find actually it's a personal experience that they've had that has led them to kind of explore the story a bit more. And, and personally, myself as a renter, you know, I became very cognizant of the issues around um, being a renter. Now, luckily, I had great uh, experiences with my landlady who used to give me dinner and leave boxes of chocolates inside my door. <laughs> so I was probably on the on the good experience. And on the other hand, you know, um, I was also getting older and I had no asset under my belt. And the Irish housing system is designed, or our social, you know, our welfare system is, is designed around retiring at 65 or whatever and having your mortgage paid off uh, and having an asset under your belt. But also, I was I was a renter at the period, you know, during between 2006 and 2011, the number of rental renters in Ireland doubled from about 9% to 18% number of households. That's only in the private sector. There's another 10% of all households who rent from the state, uh, you know, in, in, in social housing, one way, shape or form. Um, and I didn't buy my own house until 2016 or 2017. And that wasn't my first house, I have to say. But I didn't move into my kind of permanent house until uh, not that long ago. But, you know, when you're, when you're stuck in the position uh, of a renter and then I had friends who were involved in property and mortgage brokers and they said, what do you do when you're getting older? Like, and you, you don't own your own house. Like, your mortgage should be happily paid off by now. So you kind of start to think, you know, I, I don't like the phrase, the phrase property lab, but you kind of think, better get my ass in gear here now and get something 
you know. It's the ultimate FOMO. <laughs> yeah, 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 kind of, yeah, it's exactly the ultimate FOMO. But also, you're you're kind of thinking, it's, it's a lot of scaremongering goes on around this. Oh, you know, once you hit, you know, if you hit your 40s and your mid 40s, like the banks are going to struggle to give you a mortgage. They won't want to give you a mortgage and then repayments will be higher. And you start getting into panic mode. So, um, you know, I have a good friend, Carl, who's a mortgage broker. And uh, so I just spoke to Carl and he started me out a mortgage. I have to say, even me as a public sector full time employee, and I'm a bit like Donald Trump, like I could probably shoot someone in, in Bowling Street and he'd still struggle to fire me. <laughs> you know, like, like Donald said, he could shoot somebody in 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 in, in, in <laughs> this Yes, <laughs> but even I had to jump to somewhere into hoops to get a mortgage, you know, and that's that's as a result of the you know the financial collapse and banks tightening up on who can get what and the central bank in particular, you know, and the new mortgage rules, which are a good thing. Uh, but it was interesting, you know, when you well, as an academic and you can write about things and you can analyze these things, but until you're put through the ringer yourself, you know, and you have to fill in. And even this morning, I'm doing something with my mortgage here in the house, and even today, I have forms to refill in because I filled them in wrong there last week. Yeah, so I'm still jumping through the hoops uh, a long time later. So we're in that then, and looking uh, and looking at your work on housing and housing policy as well. How do you know what to focus on? Sometimes the government make it easy for you because they they never stop coming out with initiatives, ideas, policies, and tweaking things. So they just kind of hand it to you on a platter sometimes, you know, so they'll come out with the most recent thing. And what I'm doing here today is analyzing this proposal for a shared equity scheme where people can borrow money from the bank and, and the government that can borrow money from the government. It's effectively 100% mortgages, two mortgages really. Um, and I'm here analysing you know, what that means for your average household who borrow it. Before that, they come out with some other crazy policy and you just, you know, they keep handing these things to you on a plate. So generally what, what they come out with is always worth having a deeper look at because I've found over the years that politicians, you know, what they present as the policy is only 50, 60, 70% of the story. Uh, and when you, you need to get behind the headlines and do a little bit of deeper digging and then you'll find out what the real story is. And it's the same with, you know, every year then there's regular things. So it's the same with things like when the government, the minister announces how many social houses were built every year. That's always a cue for myself and, and another guy called Mel Reynolds um, to sit down and go through the numbers and actually work well, you know, the government will say, uh, you know, they built six, six or seven thousand social houses last year. Actually, when you get the numbers and you scratch the surface and you do the analysis, they built probably a thousand houses. The city council in 2019, I think, built 45 houses and 24 of them were, were refurbished from some priory hall. There's a big difference in that and saying we built thousands of houses. So out of the, the seven thousand houses that, you know, the government might claim to, to social houses, the government might claim to have built, actually uh, only built maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred. So it's very easy to know what to focus on and also then there are bigger issues around say things like health and uh, when a crisis occurs like this it's very instructive and interesting to go and look at the relationship between things like COVID and our housing standards so over the last since Alan Kelly uh, in 2015 we have been reducing the size of housing and apartments uh, in Ireland and of course now that's not suitable for two things one it's not suitable for COVID and, and self-isolation uh, and all of stuff as, as houses get smaller and there's fewer rooms in the houses and also you know working from home how do you work from home in 50 square meters if there's two of you you know it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, and also the very fact the way that the government have reduced those standards they've 
introduce the worst possible thing you could have, which are national standards. You know, the most successful policies, particularly housing around the world, are ones where the policy isn't implemented nationally, but it's implemented locally. And they're the ones that tend to work best. And what we have done uh, here is um, done a really sneaky thing, actually, a lot of people, hopefully, but a lot of people won't notice, but there's two things in legislation that a minister can do to guide local authorities, to tell them what to do. First one is a ministerial guideline, uh, which is issued to local authorities and that's guidelines to say look our preference is that you you know the average size of a house or apartment is x and we would be grateful if you'd follow that uh, and that doesn't have to go in front of the doll the minister can just issue guidelines to local authorities and it's up to local authorities then to decide whether they want to follow that or not and the second thing is a ministerial directive so that's an instruction to local authorities and that has to get doll approval so a ministerial directive has to go in front of the doll to be voted on of course if the government governs a majority it's going to get voted through but that's something that local authorities have to do. So if the minister says, here's the ministerial directive instructing local authorities to reduce the size of apartments, because they have to do that. Well, Alan Kelly, under his tenure, what they brought in was a thing called a mandatory guideline, right? It's this oxymoron, a bastardized version of a directive. So it's, it's a guideline, but it's mandatory. And the advantage for the minister is it doesn't have to go in front of the dog. So they can issue. So they, ever since they've just been issuing mandatory guidelines to tell local authorities what to do around building heights, around apartment sizes. The size of the Irish average house has gone down thirty percent in the last ten or so years. It's now about eighty-four square meters, uh, which is very small for households. You know, if you're living on your own, eighty-four square meters is yeah. great. But if you, you know, most people are in households. And it was looking at that even in the past 12 months, the average floor space in private dwellings, I think, went down by about ten to twenty percent. To the fact that we look at like the legacy of that in terms of the, the underlying health of the population, it's now that about one in seven children in Ireland are living in an apartment or a flat. So it's totally different lifestyle. Yeah. So if you fast forward a few decades and you're left with this health emergency, you're kind of passing the book to somewhere else. There's two things going on there, right? One is that things like mandatory guidelines are all about de-democratizing Irish life, right? You know what I mean? So it's taking the, the control out of the hands of local authorities and councillors really to make their own decisions. And it's totally contrary to best practice around the world where it's all about early engagement and local participation and all that kind of stuff. And what successful governments have done the last five years is reduce the amount of opportunities for participation from councillors and from the public. So they brought in another thing in the mandatory guidelines called a strategic housing development, which any planning application for more than 100, 100 apartments or 200 co-living or student beds goes straight to Embarking Ola. Thus bypassing the local authorities, where you'd normally lodge a planning application would be with your local authority. Now, for those type of developments, they lodge a straight from Borpinola, and that's totally anti-democratic. Whereas, you know, you go to best practice in Switzerland and Germany and places like that, and they will be all about the local government. And the blame then rests on accountability then less with local, rest with local government. But what the civil servants want here is total control, but no accountability and no responsibility and I, I find that incredibly great and so that's part one of what you're talking about there and the second part is about that apartment you know those mandatory guidelines for apartment size and kids going up in apartments kids effectively can't you can't really we don't have apartments suitable for households not in the at the right quantity in the right scale so people are making a choice and they're saying well I can live in a small apartment in Dublin 7 or Dublin 8 or whatever it is or I can get a house that's suitable for my family's needs out and trim and commute. And that's what they're doing. And they're making a choice to do that. So we see in 2019, the most number of houses built uh, in Ireland was in Nace. And I guarantee you most of the people in Nace are commuting into Dublin to go to work. But they made a choice. I'm not renting 
I'm not living in an apartment uh, in Dublin. That's not suitable for my family's needs. And so I'll commute and live in a, in a bigger house. And also, you know, a more affordable house. Apartments are incredibly expensive and aren't to buy, therefore not in the city. So they move out to the commuter belts. And that's what's happening. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting when you see the consequences of these different policies. But, but from your perspective, Mark, sorry, sorry to, to talk over there, but from your perspective as, as a health kind of expert, there's all sorts of other related issues there around walking and sitting in your car all day and the health of kids and, you know, being driven to school instead of walking to school and all that. So ideally, you would, you'd have loads of households living in apartments in the city centre and walking to school and walking to, to people walking to work and all that kind of stuff, you know. But because of really poor housing policy and these kind of mandatory dictates, they're forcing people into commuter counties where kids are being driven to school and not one school, but driven to two schools, you know, in the morning time. And it's usually the women who do the heavy lifting. So you'll find it's more women than anything else who are driving cars into work then because the men tend to the men tend to hop on, you know, onto, onto trains or cycle or whatever. So you have this forced car ownership effectively, which is also bad for the climate. But from the health perspective, from your expertise area, you know, it's really bad for kids' health and for for adults' health as well to be doing this. That's the big reason why I think so many in, in health have really focused on, on housing the last 12 months or so. Because in, in a large number of cases, you know, people are, say, signing up for 20-year mortgages or so on. So for the next two decades, that structure is going to have a massive influence over that person's health and their kind of lifestyle. And I think I think you're right. Like there is particularly one of the regions in the country has had the highest incidence of COVID cases uh, Dublin North Central and yet the region has been actually if you like <laughs> reclaimed almost for professional services yeah and so so obviously it kind of has massive consequences for people who grow up in that community and you know kind of be, being being priced out and so on but the one of the key stories from from that I think that that is is fascinating is the nearest area that the kids who, who play for the local sports team they have to drive the kids five kilometers to get them to the, to the nearest people. Yeah. So imagine all the barriers you have to overcome just to get kids in that area involved in playing sports. You drive them to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're driving, you're driving them for it. Dublin North Central is an interesting thing, right? I, I live in Dublin North Central and what you get is an awful lot of flats there. You get a lot of low paid workers and a lot of overcrowding. And those three things together uh, are, you know, that's just a, a petri dish for the spread of, of, of things like COVID and diseases. And then you get other parts of Dublin North Central, which are gentrified effectively, but you'll see very clear demarcations between the working class area and the gentrified area. If you go down the Docklands walls and things like that, you know, the usual stuff uh, that, that you see. And it's very, but it's also your point is, is, is right, even though it's really important to have open space and to, for areas to, to, for kids to play and all that. And if you go down the Docklands, there's very few playgrounds in all these new areas. There's very few families living down there. It's very sterile. It's very boring, to be honest with you. Like to having tens of thousands of transient, well-paid workers buying expensive skinny lattes or cappuccinos and expensive bread down there. And that's all there is down there at the weekend. It's dull. You know, you need schools, you need playgrounds, you need kids running around the place. You need all that kind of stuff. And so mono, you know, it's very grey. Uh, and that's nothing nothing wrong with having all these international high-paid people down there. It's uh, brilliant. But you also need all the, the families and the local people and all that as well. Yeah, exactly, because it becomes a case then you know, when the when the market's closed, the community closes. Well, your word there, the word that you hit on there, it's like we're obsessed with building houses here and really housing is only part of a community. We're, we have no interest in building communities. It's all financially led, you know. 
it just kind of shows kind of the legacy of kind of design policies the country is at. But within that then, Lorcan, you know, when you're reviewing these different initiatives, how do you know if your approach is working? There's two ways you, you know your ideas are working or your criticism or observations or whatever. I don't really like to call it criticism because quite often they're positive observations. And there's a few, one is you get to go to things like Oireachtas committees and present your analysis and your, your observations to the politicians directly on the housing committee. I've done that a few times and that's quite a good way of getting your thoughts on the record and getting a variety of cross-party politicians to listen to your point of view directly and, and they can ask you questions and you can ask them questions and I, I was at one housing rights committee where the uh, Senator uh, Marnan O'Connor Jennifer uh, Marnan O'Connor took the head off me but I hadn't spoken and she started giving out to me and she was confusing <laughs> for the Secretary General of the Department of Housing uh, because we're both bald and beardy and uh, so eventually she understood it very well so, so it was much better then we get on much better after that but you get that and also you get politicians ringing you and emailing you all the time looking for your help and your assistance on you know their bills or ask you questions about policies that you know politicians are across everything so they're not I don't expect them to be experts on housing although a few of them have particular interest in housing uh, and you can get to influence things like that as well and that's quite interesting. And then there's the head-to-head challenge. Now, I don't do head-to-head challenges on the radio or whatever with politicians. I try to avoid that because that's a job for politicians to have a go at other politicians. I'm kind of there as the independent observer or, you know, objective academic. Uh, I, I tend to stay away from that because it's, I'm not a politician and I'm not up for having that kind of aggro, you know. But the other way that you see that you have wins is to data and changing things to data. And the biggest win... I've had over the years has been around house building numbers. For years, we have been counting the number of houses built in the year. We have been counting houses to connection to the ESB. So when a house is built and it gets connected to the ESB and gets an account number, that's counted as a new house. The problem was that myself and Mel Rounds worked out was that you can, there's loads of reasons where a building could get a new ESB connection and not be a new house. So, for example, a ghost estate, once a house is empty for two years, it ESB, say, for safety reasons, it needs a new connection. So that gets counted as a new house, even though it could be 10 years old or 12 years old. It was quite often cow sheds and farm buildings getting an ESB connection, like for a milking parlour. They were being counted as a new house. So instead of Mel went through the numbers, and we realised this is bonkers. Like, we're being told we're building 20, 25,000 houses a year, and we're looking at lots of different metrics, commencement notices, and all sorts of things, and we're thinking, this is mad. And we had loads of arguments with, with you know, no, we put loads of stuff out there on Twitter. I don't do Twitter anymore, but we put loads of stuff out there on Twitter and, and wrote articles. And we wrote a big piece in the Irish Times taking apart the, the housing data. And the Minister at the time, Simon Coveney, he wrote a huge letter back to the Irish Times <laughs> taking those apart, you know. And then we wrote a one-liner in response to that because you don't need to say a whole lot, just say it's up to you, Minister, <laughs> to prove we're wrong. It's not up to us to prove you're right. You know, that kind of way. And so... In fairness, Owen Murphy, when, when, when Simon Coveney ran for the hills there and went off to doing whatever he was doing, foreign affairs, all <laughs> took over and, and everybody runs out of that department. But very soon he handed it to the CSO because it had been the department who had been counting houses, right? And of course, when you've, you know, you've officials counting houses on behalf of the minister, they want to boost everything as much as they can, which is what to do with the social housing numbers as well. So Owen handed it to the CSO, which I thought was you know, fair play to him. I'll always give him credit for that. I don't think he had great housing policies, but that was a good thing to do. And a year later, then we were invited to a press launch in the Department of Teaching. Uh, and we didn't know what we were going to say, myself and uh, Orla Haggerty went along, and we didn't know what 
the CSO are going to come out with. So they could have improved us right, or they could have said, no, actually, you're bonkers, you're wrong. You know, and it was a room full of journalists looking at this, and they came out, and of course, we were right. And the CSO confirmed that the Department of Housing had been overcounting houses every year by around 30, 35%. And that then changed everything because that meant that all the rebuilding Ireland targets with their government housing policy targets were now out of date, or, or because they, you know, we introduced them by their output by 40%, 35, 40%. It meant that the CSO were now in charge of counting houses, so the Department of Housing couldn't have control over it anymore. So in other words, it took the politics out of it. Uh, and it meant that we got accurate data. And the most important thing, and never mind the little win from my ego, is the most important thing is we started to get accurate data. Uh, and like if you have inaccurate data, you can't make housing policy on things. You know, you can't manage what you can't measure. So now we have relatively accurate, I don't think it's perfect, but we have much more accurate data about the number of houses that have been churned out every year. You know, what do you think of the central bank coming out saying, you know, we need 34 or 34,000 new homes every year until 2030? Experts come out with this stuff like you need between 30,000 and 47,000 new houses every year. But there's a couple of problems with that, right? One, we don't have the construction staff to build that. So if, if for this, as we don't know, you roughly what it mean for every 10,000 houses you plan to build, you need 20,000 workers, about two workers per house. So 47,000 uh, houses a year would employ 94,000 construction workers just on residential alone, uh, never mind industrial and office and commercial and all that kind of stuff. So we don't have that. So that's just like in terms of staffing, that's impossible to do. And those people who are relying on workers from Turkey and that coming over here again, like they did before, that's not going to happen because the biggest driver of migration from one country to another country is being next door to a crap country. And in 2004, there were a lot of rubbish, you know, a lot of countries doing really badly around Europe. Uh, and once accession happened of all the new countries, they quite happily skipped Ireland, Sweden and the UK, who let them in straight away. That doesn't happen anymore because most countries in Europe are doing okay. So if you're in, you know, some poor country in Europe and you're looking to migrate to earn money, you're going to go to the country next door to you. You're not going to fly all the way over to Ireland. So we can't rely on immigration of workers, construction workers to do that. So first part is workers. The second part is this, right? If houses were free, absolutely we might need 30, 40, 47,000 houses a year, right? And I could give them away because there's probably 47,000 or 40,000 households out there clamoring for a house, clamoring for a house, and, and I could probably get rid of 40,000 houses tomorrow. Houses aren't free though. Right, we have to pay for them, um, and you know, every year when we the amount of houses we build, we only sell about half them. Only half them come to the market. So in two thousand nineteen, we built about twenty thousand houses between one-off houses, which are usually built specifically for a person, so they don't go for sale, and social housing. Only about half of those came to the market, which is about ten thousand houses on already prices were flat because remember most people have to go and go to the bank and get a mortgage and get mortgage approval so already prices were, were flatlining which would indicate for the economists who were listening that you know supply was meeting demand at 10,000 houses right not 47,000 houses so is there a market there for 40,000 houses a year uh, no there isn't and government will never let that happen anyway because it would crash the market if you suddenly flood the market with you know lots of cheap housing it would crash the private house builders and one thing government don't want to do is go near the private house builders so there isn't even a market there for that number of that quantity of houses uh, every year so you know the biggest threat to house builders and to people who invest in housing is the development of affordable housing that will undermine the private housing sector left right and center which is why the government are so reluctant to develop any sort of affordable housing at all so affordable housing 
you know, you're looking at 250,000, maybe 270,000 euro houses. The government have no interest in providing those type of houses because it would it would be a direct threat to all the private house builders who want to sell houses at 400 grand a pop. So we don't have a market for it. Houses aren't free and we don't have the workers to provide it anyway. So I think those predictions are... You know, they need to be taught through a little bit more, if I can say that more politely. <laughs> <laughs> but in that notion, you know, what have been some of your biggest insights so far? Biggest insights are around how policy is made, probably. The power and impact of the lobbyists, Irish institutional property, property industry, Ireland, the CIF. They, you know, to my mind, they effectively write housing policy in the last five years. And we know that the strategic housing development was a direct initiative from Property Industry Ireland that got pretty much translated, copied and pasted into policy and legislation. The shared equity scheme that the current minister is talking about at the moment, which is um, more active nonsense, 100% mortgage kind of stuff. Again, that came directly from lobbying from IIP, Irish Institutional Property, which also represents house builders and Property Industry Ireland, which also represents people like house builders uh, and investors and that's almost cut and paste from what they suggested to the minister so and the CIF and so you know the power and influence of lobbyists you'd wonder why we have civil servants in there working on policy because it seems to be that the lobbyists are writing all the policy the, so that's the first thing is, is the impact um, of lobbyists the second thing I suppose is the power of the civil servants who seem to just run the show uh, you know, a minister, and I've quite often run rings around the ministers as far as as far as we can see, because quite often ministers know the right thing to do, and I've spoken to various ministers over the years, and they say, "Well, the civil service won't let me do that." And I think, "Well, who's in charge here? Whose department is this?" You know, so there's things like that. How policy is being made? I actually have a PhD student at the moment who's looking at how policy is being made, and it's it's really interesting when you get away from the actual policy. Don't focus on the policy, but focus on the the mechanisms where policy, how by whereby policy is made. And you'll get into all sorts of psychology or organizational psychology and things like that, which is very interesting. And it goes quite deep. Uh, and it's very hard to affect change. Uh, I think that's the, that's the other insight. It's very difficult. There's cultural issues going on within the civil service that are really hard to shift the way they do work. Uh, there's quite a right-wing kind of vibe about, about the policies that, that come out quite often, you know, and then only in a time of crisis do you see actual shifting happening. So for years we were told, oh, there's nothing we can do about preventing evictions in the rental sector and that'll be anti-constitutional and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? Suddenly we have a COVID epidemic and there's a ban on evictions. So we can do things where we <laughs> yeah. want to do things, you know, yeah. and that's only one example. And I know it's it's an emergency and therefore there's certain parameters are shifted, but we can do things when we want to do them. It's just there's a lack of willingness to do anything. And the market is king. That's, I suppose, the final thing within policy making and within the Department of Housing. The market rules all. It's a, it's a very much a market-driven approach to policy, I think. How do you think then, with them insights in mind, that you know we can marry up, one, the demand for housing, two, the need to recognise the culture and the way that which these policies emerge through lobbyists and the need or the perception that the market needs to be kind of secured as well. How do we marry up all them to actually solve a housing crisis then? There's a couple of things. One is that we need to work out what a crisis is. So there's a huge amount of discussion about, you know, housing crisis this and housing crisis that. And I was on a webcast thing the other day with a lot of the great and the good, including the minister. There was a lot of discussion about housing crisis. Nobody defined what the crisis is. You know, a crisis to me is something that's a natural phenomenon, like a tornado or a hurricane or whatever, like that we can't control. We have engineered things to create the current situation. And the usual response to that is all supply, supply, supply. And that's 
pretty simplistic response. The economists love this, so it's all about supply, you know, but it's, it's not all about supply. It has to be the right type of supply in the right location at the right price. And to me, it's not necessarily a crisis of supply. It's probably a crisis of affordability. We've 180,000 vacant houses around the country, like, you know, so there's supply for a start, but it's a question of what people can afford and helping people afford what's on offer rather than making what's on offer more affordable is not the solution to it. So I think we have to define what a crisis is and what we're talking about. A lot of people say supply, I say affordability. And we also were still lacking one of the crises that we have again is one on data. So most of the activity and the action that's happening, and a lot of people won't realize this, is it's in the land market and not in house building because land is a huge component of the price of a house and we have no data on land. So we have a property price register, for example, but we don't have a land price register. If we knew what price people were paying for land, we could predict what price housing was going to come out at. You know, when you add on construction costs and bricks and blocks and labor, we'd know the sales price. So we could do something about the price of land. And we haven't, we're, we're afraid to go near that. I think the government are afraid to go near the land price register because then the, everybody would know what the big house builders or investors are paying for land and overpaying for land. And a lot of what's going on, a lot of the high prices are because, you know, people who bought land paid too much for it. And then, so for example, RTE in Donnybrook, Cairn Homes paid a huge amount of money for that, which means when you work through the figures that they're going to be selling apartments there for six and seven hundred grand to go. Uh, and that's a huge problem for the vast majority of people who have an income of 40 or 50 grand. Um, you know, and that's probably overstating the last, last majority of households of an income of 40 or 50 grand. So we need to, you know, I think the crisis is one of affordability, but defining it for a crisis will be a start. The second part here, you know, this, how you marry all that up, I have no clue. I just keep chipping away at it and hoping that, you know, some civil servant, and there's some, there are some good ones and parents in there, or some minister, you know, says, okay, that's not a bad idea. We're getting nowhere with what we're doing at the moment and we'll give something else a go. Things are like that a lot with policy that a lot of people in this podcast series that, you know, you do not know what way things are going to go. So you have to have that ability and uh, just accepting you may have to change tact here. Yeah, I notice because I, I just from various things that I do, I kind of have engagement with at least three different government departments. And the really my insight, I suppose, back to one of the other questions is that the culture is very similar in all of them, even though they're all dealing with different things. Uh, so does there cultural things that we need to overcome with politicians and with their advisors and, and, and the civil servants and the officials who work for them. Going forward and looking, you know, what are your hopes for how we deliver housing in the future? I think, you know, we have to be careful and, and, and listen to the right people. I think the economists have had a good run on it over the years with their analysis, but you know, there's much more to housing than economics. Uh, so I'd like to see a more holistic approach to it. So for example, you never hear anybody talking about housing and transport. You know, the, the, the economists and the, the, those journalists who write from that economic kind of perspective, they never talk about the relationship between housing and transport, housing and health. You never really see anyone writing about that. Housing and gender, if I said to vast majority of the great gurus on housing in the Irish media, tell me about housing and gender, they would scratch their heads because they haven't a clue. Housing in communities, housing in rural areas. There's a whole load of issues around housing that never get an airing. Uh, and I would like to see a much more holistic approach taken to housing. So the delivery of housing, the actual handing over the keys to the front door and the price people pay for it, should be way down the list of things that we should be. We, we need to get a lot of other 
ducks in a row before we start talking to the builders about delivering housing. But instead, we have it the wrong way around. So it's all about delivering housing and hidden targets uh, of housing output. And then we end up with houses in the wrong places, the wrong types of accommodation, like small apartments, co-living, Mac housing solutions. They look good on the menu, but they don't keep you satisfied for very long. Uh, and they're very expensive. Uh, and that's what we end up with. And that's what we're ending up with at the moment. There's plans for you know, for thousands of co-living uh, units in the pipeline at the moment. And they're, they're nonsense. They're, they're, you know, they're going to end up as slums. And again, we've got you know, tens of thousands of student accommodation, even though we know that that market is well oversupplied. So we're ending up with the most lucrative housing and most expensive housing solutions in the Verta Commons, the MAC housing solutions, but yet the least satisfactory ones. So my hope for the future would be that we'd be much more broader, more holistic approach taken to looking at housing policy. Logan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time today to have a chat with us. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. You're more than welcome, Mark. Hi, Mark here again. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again and I hope you tune in next week.